Well, good morning, and let's go ahead and turn in our Bibles to Luke's Gospel, chapter 11. Luke's Gospel, chapter 11. And we're going to pick it up in verse 5. And he said to them, Now which of you has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything, because he is his friend, yet... Because of his impulsiveness, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And, I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if, he ha- if his son asks for a fish, will instead give him a, a fish and uh, give him a, ser- a serpent? Or, if he asks for an egg, will he give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? This week I had an opportunity to visit my dad in the hospital and as I was making my way to the hospital I was thinking about the various times that I have uh, met with him there. He's had many health difficulties over the last, oh boy, the last 30 years. And each and every time I go to see my father in the hospital I'm always amazed by him. Because the moment I come into the room, his face just lights up, he smiles, he asks me to sit down, and he begins to talk with me, and before I can even ask how he is feeling or how he is doing, and uh, when he thinks he's going to get out of here, and has he caused the nurses any heartache and grief, uh, even before I can say any of that to him, he always asks me first, how are you doing? How's the family? How's Autumn? And you, I can see it in his eyes that there's just such care and devotion in what he's asking. He's, he's sincere. He really wants to know how I'm doing, and yet he is the one in the hospital, and he's the one that is being taken care of and often feels poorly while he is there, and yet he is still concerned about me, his son. Ever since I've known my dad, and of course grown up there at home, my dad has always been one of the most approachable people that I've known in my life. He's always allowed me to come to him at any time. It didn't matter if it was late at night or middle of the night or early morning. Uh, He would always allow me to come and talk with him. If I was ever concerned about something or afraid or if I had questions or I needed his input and wisdom... He always allowed me to approach him. 
It's something that I valued so greatly that I really made it a purpose to do the same for my daughter. To always be available to her, no matter when she calls or when she approaches me. And even putting down things that are important at the moment to talk with her. To allow her to know that as my daughter, she always has my ear. The parable that we read this morning has to do with Jesus establishing in the minds and the hearts of the people who desired to know how to pray. If you look with me in verse 1, you will find that the disciples asked him after he finished praying, he said, Lord, the disciples that is, said, Lord, teach us to pray. One person stated it this way. He said, understanding the character of God removes many of the problems we have with prayer. Jesus wanted to establish in the hearts and the minds of those who were listening to him, inquiring concerning how one should pray. He needed to establish in their hearts and minds the idea that God was approachable. For you and I, that might sound, well, a given, I understand he's approachable. I understand that I can talk with him at any time that I want. And last week, as we discussed, we can talk with him wherever we want. We don't have to be uh, in church or we don't have to be in a significant uh, location of some sort before we can pray and God will hear us. We can be anywhere when we pray. But for the Jewish people, that wasn't a reality. For the Jewish people, they grew up understanding that to pray you needed to be in the temple. And the temple consisted of one section within it called the Holy of Holies. It's where the Ark of God was was, uh, stored and it was where God himself came upon the Ark and it was his presence there in the Holy of Holies that allowed for the interaction between him and the people. It was such a sacred place that only the high priest of the uh, Jewish faith could go in once a year to tend to the needs of the Holy of Holies. And he had to go through an incredibly elaborate system before he could enter into the Holy of Holies in the presence of God. He had to go through a cleansing process of uh, ceremonial and ritual cleansings, one right after another. And if they were done improperly in any way, shape, or form, or if his heart was not right before God because the ceremonies had not been respected, he would be struck dead before God in the Holy of Holies for his lack of reverence and respect to the holiness of that place. In fact, they used to tie a rope to his ankle and he would have little bells at the bottom of his robe. And if those bells ceased to ring and they heard a thud, they'd start pulling on the rope and pull him out from behind the curtain of the Holy of Holies because obviously he was not found in a right standing with God. From the Holy of Holies, there were different chambers within the temple, and there were also different courts within the temple. Most people, people like you and I, we would not be able to enter into the uh, inner sanctum of the, the temple because that was for the Levitical priests only. 
we would have occupied one of the outer courts. And it's in those outer courts that we would have prayed and listened to the teaching of, uh, the, of the law of the Lord. We would have interacted with one another, discussed the things of God, and so forth. And it was in these courts that uh, most of the fellowship was uh, to take place. And in the courts, there was always this degree of separation between the person and God. They knew that God was way over there someplace in the Holy of Holies, that they would never be able to enter in because of who they were. And so often when they would pray, it would be praying from a distance. It would be praying into the air and hoping that God would hear you. There would be very little intimacy between the individual and God in their times of prayer. And because of the uh, incredible rigid rituals that must take place before the high priest could go in before the Holy of Holies, they knew that God was not necessary, necessarily approachable at any given time, at any given place. So Jesus needed to show that this God who seemed so afar has now come near. Jesus had to demonstrate that God was approachable, that is, God the Father, to those who desired to pray. And I will tell you that knowing that my Father was approachable at any given time, and I could ask Him any question that I had, even if it was one of those embarrassing questions, you hear something at school, you don't know what it means, so you run to your parents, and my dad was a principal, Uh, So he knew pretty much everything that was floating around the schools. And you could even ask him, you know, what, what, Dad, these kids are using this word and I I don't know what it means. And and I used to just ask him those questions directly and he would just give me a very straight answer. This is what it means. But because he was approachable, I always knew that I could go to him. I wouldn't admit it to my friends and that I had that type of relationship with my father, but I sure valued it. Knowing that God is approachable, I believe, allows us as believers in Jesus Christ to feel more invited into prayer. To understand that God, like our earthly father, looks forward to spending time with his kids. When I came into the hospital just last Thursday and I walked into that room and I saw his face light up in the way that it did. It's not that he hadn't seen me for a very, very long time. I see him weekly. But I just know that each and every time it's something special to him. He looks forward to it. It means something to him greatly. Knowing that God is approachable has always encouraged my prayer life knowing that he will answer my prayers, knowing that when Jesus Christ died, that curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple was torn, not from the bottom to the top, but from the top to the bottom, showing that only God could have torn and separated that curtain. Demonstrating that through the person of Jesus Christ, I now had full access to God the Father. The writer to the, of the book of Hebrews stated it this way, that we can come boldly into the throne room of God to find grace and help in our time of need. That He is now accessible to us. 
He's approachable through Christ for us. And He is always there and He always cares for us. So when the disciples asked Jesus, teach us to pray, Jesus knew in His wisdom that He needed to bring this relationship between the individual and God the Father into a place of intimacy. Into a place where these individuals could, would know for certain in their hearts that they could approach God through Christ and at any time and at any place interact with Him through prayer. So he begins by illustrating this in verses 5 through 8 in our text this morning through a parable of contrast. A parable of contrast. Now, I have heard this parable taught incorrectly so many times that I must bring forward this morning that this parable does not have to do with persistence. This does not have to do with telling a person how to pray, that they must be persistent in prayer. They must stand in the door and beat it on it until God will finally get up and deal with their need in which they have. That is not what Jesus is communicating here. It would be if this was a parable of, uh, of um, comparison. A parable of comparison gives us parallel examples of comparison that this character that i'm illustrating in the parable is just like the character of god but there are parables of contrast this is the opposite of what god is really like and that's what jesus is bringing forward here this morning it is a parable of contrast Meaning the manner in which this man had to approach his neighbor over this subject is not the same manner in which you need to approach God the Father to get his attention, to get his ear, and to have him respond to your prayer. It is just the opposite. So let us begin in verse 5 as we look at it together. As Jesus continues his teaching on prayer, and we began this last week, if you'd like to go back and listen to that message you're welcome to and he said to them now which of you has a friend has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him friend lend me three loaves for i have a friend of mine has come on a journey and i have nothing to set before him it was very common in that culture to travel at night due to the simple heat of the israeli deserts To have a guest come to your home at midnight was not uncommon. And due to the hospitality that was required in that culture, that when one came to your door, not only were you to be hospitable and welcome them into your home, but you were also to prepare a meal for them. That was considered polite. That was considered the right thing to do. It was culturally uh, expected of you to do just that. But this man, who has a friend arrive, realizes that he is out of bread. And in that culture, a whole community was uh, responsible for hospitality, not just one person. The whole community was. So at midnight, this man runs over to his neighbor and starts knocking on the door. Starts pounding on it. In verse 7, and he will answer from within... Do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. 
I cannot get up and give you anything. In that culture, hospitality was one of the key components to that society. But there was an understanding that as you went past someone's house, if their front door was open, that means that you were welcome to stop in and you were welcome to impose upon them and you were welcome to uh, fellowship with them and so forth. But at the evening time, because most of the houses in Israel at that time were simply a one-room structure, and at nighttime, they would bring the children, they would bring some of the farm animals, and they would gather in the center of that room, huddled together for warmth, and then they would bar the door from the inside to protect them during the night. And once they got into that position and the door was closed to the public, it was expected, it was courteous of you then to keep walking by. Okay, their door is shut, you know, uh, they must be already uh, wrapped up for bed you know so let's not go ahead and disturb them let's go on and see if someone else is up and once you get everybody settled and of course in a one-room place there's not a lot of room to settle the last thing you need is someone coming to the door at midnight after you're getting the kids settled and the chicken settled and the the lamb settled and everything else because that's what they would do they would bring those animals in with them to get all settled and, you know, everybody's got a drink of water and everybody's gone to the bathroom and everybody is now settled and they're now starting to fall asleep and their eyes are getting heavy and you're like, this is it. Here we go. Ten, nine, eight. Oh, we're almost there. And all of a sudden, good grief, Charlie Brown. Go away. My door is shut. I don't want to, I don't need, no, I have nothing to give you. Go Go away. I am not coming up. Everybody is asleep. Now the kids are awake. The chickens are running around the house. The lambs are running after the chickens. The goats are after the lambs. And the cows are after the goats. It's utter chaos now. Just trying to get everybody back to sleep. But the man kept and he was insistent. In verse 8 we pick it up and he says here, And I tell you, though he will not get up and give anything because he is his friend, meaning on that basis alone, yet, because of his impotence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. Because of this man's persistence, because he will not go away, because it is the right thing in that culture to provide for a neighbor at this moment in time, but because of his persistence, not based on his friendship or him being a neighbor, but based on his pure persistence, his shameless continuation of knocking, he will get up and rise and give him whatever he needs. So often when people read this, they say, well, that must reflect God. And they see this as a parable of comparison. But in actuality, it is a parable of contrast. How do we know this? Well, because of what Jesus says next. Jesus says that when you act with your heavenly Father, you're not acting with a neighbor or a friend, but you're acting and interacting with your Father. Who cares for you like a son or like a daughter? 
And He is available to you and He's approachable for you. And Jesus wanted them to know that what this man experienced is not what you will experience when you approach God in prayer. You don't have to be this persistent. This is exactly the same lesson that he taught in the parable of the persistent woman with the judge in Luke 18. And we'll see that in just a moment. But how many people have this picture of God that I must do something uh, extraordinary to get his attention? That I have to be obnoxious and continue pounding on his door before he will even open it to me and listen to my request? There are many who have this perception of God that is so inaccurate that instead of encouraging a prayer life, it discourages it. It hinders them from coming before God, thinking that they're going to be received in such a way. But just the opposite is true. And because of the approachability of God now that we have through Jesus Christ, And because He's always available to us and He loves to spend time with His kids and He loves to hear from us, prayer should be something that we look forward to in great anticipation. Not in complete reluctance. And Jesus was trying to show and demonstrate for the disciples, for those who were listening, what they could anticipate when they approached God in prayer. Jesus then goes on in verse 9 and he says, And I will tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be open to you. One of the great reasons for unanswered prayer is due to the fact that the prayer has never been requested to begin with. James stated that you have not because you have asked not. The reasons that so many uh, things go unanswered is because we've never requested uh, of them before God. Living with the, the, the incredible wife that I do, who I believe really has a gift when it comes to prayer, She has such confidence in her God and her Father that often I find her praying over things that maybe I would never consider praying over. Last winter, for example, we we live in a condominium and we live on the second floor and we have a a, uh, border collie that needs to go out. And of course she needs to go out when it's pouring, when it's a blizzard. You know, when the wind is blowing that, you know, we don't even have to brush her. We just put her out there and all the wind blows the, the, uh, the hair right off of her. But for some reason, when it's sunny, she just lays around. When it's peaceful, she's just on her back with her paws up like this. But as soon as the weather changes, she's got to go out immediately. It was the middle of night. The dog had to go out before we went to bed. It had just snowed and was continuing to snow quite heavily. And my wife is out, of course, with the dog, walking the dog at that time. 
And lo and behold, as she gets back to our building, she's searching her pockets, did only to discover that she had lost the keys. And it's a, a blizzard out now. And she can't imagine a small key ring with just a couple of keys on it, lost now in this incredible vastness of snow around our home. And she took the dog on a little bit of a walk, because her and the dog both love snow. And she buzzes the door, and I answer it and come down, and she goes, I can't believe it. I lost the keys. I said, oh, well, don't come back until you find them. <laughs> Loving husband that I am. I'll take the dog up. I'll be watching the news. Let me know how it goes. No, of course not. And so we went seeking the keys. And you can see, in, you know, your hand in front of your face, the snow was coming down in those flakes that looked like the size of leaves, you know. And she goes, well, I just read this week in my devotional that God sees everything, so I'm going to pray and ask him to show me where these keys are. He knows where they are. And I said, okay, honey, go ahead, let's pray. And she prayed. And as she walked out there, she began walking around, and sure enough, she looked down, and in the midst of an area where you never would look, she went almost right to it, looked down, and there were the keys. And she goes, nothing's too small for my dad. And she walked right back in, locked me out. No. <laughs> and, uh, and just the confidence she had. It's amazing now. It just it rubs off on you. It's like, okay, well, if she can have that kind of faith, I can have that kind of faith. And sure enough, there is nothing too small to bring to God. There's nothing too insignificant that God doesn't care about if you choose to pray about it. There's nothing that God is going to say, really? Really, you're bringing that to me? Really? No. But in the life of prayer, as Paul stated, prayer without ceasing. Well, what does that mean? It means having a life of prayer where it's just a natural element of your Christian faith. Where you pray. You just pray. And trusting God. I'm convinced that even if she didn't find those keys, it wouldn't have shaken her faith in God one bit. But because she did, she got and she did. She just kind of took him and went like, this right in front of my face, you know, just to remind me, you know, jingled them. But so often I hear Christians say to me, well, I've asked and God has not answered. I've sought, but I still have not found. I've knocked and it seems like the door to God is closed. Well, let's talk about that in a moment. The promise here is so emphatic by Jesus that it is undeniable. That we can ask, and we can seek, and we can knock, and it will be open to us. And we will find, and we will receive. But there are some caveats to this. Number one, the first caveat, is God's will. We must understand that He will fulfill it exactly the way His will has us to fulfill it, has to fulfill it. Number two is the caveat of His timing. He'll do it in a way that glorifies him the most. We would have never found those keys if it weren't for the Lord that night. 
because the snow had already covered over them. It was an incredible story. You should ask her about it when you see her. And she found them. I, I don't, I mean, it's just like, it was like, Lord, thank you. You do see every little thing. And as we often then say, well, you know, he hasn't answered my prayer. Well, maybe it's because it's in your timing and not in God's timing. I prayed for my mom for 33 years to come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. During those 33 years, I often, I believe in my heart, just kind of gave up. Thinking, oh well, if it hasn't happened now, it's never going to happen. But then the Lord would prompt me by, I'll read those verses where it says that He desires all people to be saved. I'll read those verses that says that God is long-suffering because He hopes that all will come to Him in repentance. And I begin to pray again. And one afternoon, sitting on the couch in our, on a Sunday afternoon, while my mom was in the hospital that particular day, we were having lunch, Dina and I, and all of a sudden Dina just kind of looked at me and she goes, you know, I've got to go talk to your mom right now. I just really feel that the Lord wants me to do it. And I said, well, okay, but we're, we're having sandwiches, you know. And she said, you know, I, I, you know I'm going to go and, you know, and so she, I go, by all means. And, and uh, so she got up and went. And sure enough, the Lord was leading her to a time where my mom had clarity of thinking. She was awake and just absolutely alert. And they started talking. And by the end of the conversation, my mother was praying to receive Jesus Christ as her Savior. Incredible. But it was in God's will, in God's timing. And so often when I pray and I don't see things happen as quickly as I would like to see them happen, I often say that, well, Lord, it must not be your will or it must not be your timing, but I'll keep asking until you show me clearly. Now, God knows what we're in need of before we even ask, doesn't he? And God promises that he will supply all of our needs if we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And therefore, if God is possibly not providing it, then maybe it's a want that we are going to spend on our own pleasures rather than a need that he feels that we need for his purposes and his glory. But Jesus wanted to eliminate any type of apprehension that these individuals would have in going to their heavenly father. The Jewish people wouldn't even spell his name or say Jehovah or Yahweh. They, they, they shrunkated it to uh, be respectful of it. And they, and they didn't want to disrespect God in any single way. And now Jesus is saying to them, you can come to him as if he was your father. This was a completely new concept to these people. But for you and I, it's something that hopefully we have learned from the very beginning. For he says in verse 10, For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be open. Now what father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg? will give him a scorpion. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the 
Heavenly Father, give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him. Some of your translations may read, How many will ask for bread and be given a stone? It is a textual variant in the Greek manuscripts. It's for another conversation at another time because it's much longer. Or a, in place of a fish with a serpent. In the Sea of Galilee, there were certain fish that were unedible to the people. There were three or four species amongst the 14 species found in the Sea of Galilee that were considered good commercial fish that were normally tolerated and were able to be eaten by everybody without incident. There were other fish in the Sea of Galilee that looked more like eels. And therefore, they would not eat these because many got sick from doing so. And Jesus is saying, how many ask for a fish and the man, the father, gives him a serpent? Undoubtedly, speaking of the fact that the fish looks like a serpent and maybe is long and cylindrical rather than, of course, the fish shape that we would be accustomed to. Now, the egg and the scorpion is very interesting. One of the archaeologists that I read described it for me that a Israeli scorpion to defend himself, will roll himself up into a ball that almost identically looks like an egg. And therefore, a father being asked by the child for an egg is not going to give him a scorpion to deceive him and to play a trick on him as it's rolled up in that you know, fortified state. So there is meaning, a cultural meaning to these differences that he is speaking of. And if it is bread and stone, you can understand that a loaf of bread and a stone would look almost identical until you went to bite into it. And then you'd have other problems. Then you'd be in need of a dentist. But Jesus is saying here, if your father who is fallen and has been affected by sin and that sin leading to corruption... He uses the word evil here, can give a good gift to the child that he has and when the, uh, the child requests of him, how much more, there's the contrast, how much more can your heavenly father do for you? When you ask, when you seek, when you knock. It is interesting that in this contrast we see Jesus saying, your God knows what you're in need of. He's available to you. He is approachable. Now, ask, seek, knock. The greatest gift that God believed that one could be given by His Heavenly Father was that of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the essence of Christianity that separates it from every other religion in the world. The Holy Spirit is the one object or one uh, aspects of our faith in, in Christ that no other religion can parallel. Jesus didn't only ask us to live in a certain manner, but he gave us the power to do so. The Jewish concept of the Holy Spirit was being individually anointing uh, individuals throughout the Old Testament, usually signified by the pouring on of oil by one of the prophets. Jesus is now saying, I'm going to provide for you through my death and resurrection the possibility that all who believe in me shall be given the Holy Spirit. 
And throughout the New Testament, we are, talked, we are told to pray in the Spirit. And even when we don't know what to pray for, the Spirit can pray through us. It's incredible. The Holy Spirit can intercede in our lives and can actually comfort us in a supernatural way when those circumstances of this world become overwhelming to us. For Jesus initially introduced him as our comforter. But many do not understand that the individual can be in one of three relationship states with the Holy Spirit. The Bible clearly teaches, Jesus clearly teaches, that before an individual comes to Christ, the Holy Spirit is with them. That is para, alongside. Convicting that individual of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. Drawing that individual to the saving work of Jesus Christ. Apart from that individual, but with that individual. Then he goes on, Jesus said in John 14, 17, then he says, the Spirit will be in you. And each and every believer in Jesus Christ, at the moment they get saved, is, are given the Holy Spirit to dwell within them. And therefore, they are able to produce the fruit of the Spirit, to walk in the Spirit, to pray in the Spirit, etc. Because the Holy Spirit resides in them. In John 20, Jesus breathed upon the disciples and the Spirit was received by them and was in them. But then there's a third relationship. When the disciples gathered in Jerusalem just prior to the ascension of Jesus to heaven, He said, I want you to wait in Jerusalem for the coming of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit shall come upon you, epi, to overflowing. That third relationship with the Holy Spirit is to be filled with the Spirit. For the purposes of serving God and glorifying Him in and through your life. For the purpose of supernatural actions in and through your life. And throughout the New Testament, we find that encouragement from Peter and Paul to be filled with the Spirit of God. Paul made it clear that the the filling of the Holy Spirit was an aspect that uh, demonstrated that one was therefore then um, birthed in Christ, but also now serving Christ and living for His glory. The filling of the Holy Spirit is found throughout Acts. It's not just one event. It seemed to have taken place several times in the life of the disciples, as it may take place several times in our lives. The filling of the Holy Spirit is one of the most neglected uh, understanding of the relationship between man and the Spirit throughout the Scriptures, and certainly beyond our culture. There are many who teach that this, what we would call the filling of the Spirit, some would call the baptism of the Spirit, occurs all at the time of conversion. But yet we have example, one right after another, of individuals who were saved, who were then baptized after they were saved. And therefore, I believe that it is a third relationship that you can pray and ask God for. And then hold on to your socks. (laughs) It's incredible what God will do. There's a book that I recommend to all Christians to read. It was released by Zondervan's back in the late 80s, early 90s, and it was called They Found the Secret. 
And if you have a chance to find that book and read it, each and every case has to do with this filling of the Holy Spirit. Another book on the Holy Spirit that I really encourage believers to read is one written by Pastor Chuck Smith called Living Waters. It's a dynamic book on understanding the role of the life of the Spirit and living in the life of the Spirit in the life of the believer in Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit is the greatest asset that we have, and yet often we try to do everything in the power of our flesh. But when we let God do it through the power of the Spirit, He is often glorified in a manner that is incapable of happening through my doing or my abilities. The greatest things I've ever seen God do in my life were done apart from my personal abilities, but through the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus knew that the greatest thing that they could be given is the Holy Spirit. Luke knew as he was writing this, undoubtedly moving his way to write the book of Acts later, that when the disciples asked the Father for the Spirit, what were they doing when they were anointed with the Spirit in the upper room? They were praying and waiting upon Him. And so it's imperative that you and I know that that is an aspect of the Christian faith that we can seek ourselves. But God is approachable to you and I. As Warren Worsby stated in his conclusion, he said, the fact that God gives only good gifts to His children explains why He does not give us everything we request, even things that look good to us. Thus, we need to understand that Jesus' promises here that God will give us what we ask are referring only to things that are good for us. I pray that you this morning see that God is accessible to you. He's approachable. Through Christ, that pathway has been made clear and is permanently open to each and every one of you who are a follower of Christ. And that you can sit with your Heavenly Father and talk with Him. And He's always excited to see you. He loves to hear from you. When we were trying to help Autumn understand this in her own life, that's my daughter, As she was growing up, she would often run to us and say, Mom, Dad, can you pray for us? Can you pray for me? And we would always pray for her. But then we would ask her to pray for herself. Because we wanted to see that it was personal, that she too could, through Christ, speak with God the Father. And it was so cute how it, you know, started, you know. I mean, it it started, you know, oh, Lord, you know, help me get a good... Uh, great on my quiz and help me to you know be good in class and help me not to hit Isabel in the head with my Bible and you know little things like that but now that she's in college over all of these years she's developed her own prayer life and now when she asks us for prayer she's already been praying about those things she called us just the other day because she realized that her double major was going to end sooner and she would have graduated in January rather than in June of 2021. And she said, I'm thinking about adding to my double major and minor in social work and I've been praying about it and I believe the Lord wants me to do it. Would you pray with me on it? And of course, she had already been praying. 
confident that God would respond to her, understanding that she needed to wait on him. And that's important because I don't want anyone to look at me or Dina or Joe or Chris and say, for some reason, their prayers seem to be more answered than others. Anyone can cultivate this prayer life with God. That's what you need to do, though. You need to cultivate it. You need to ask. You need to seek. And you need to knock. And you will receive. And you will find. And the door will be open to you.